I just had to read that phrase from that second verse that we just sang, but I had to run back to get my glasses to read it. It sets us up well for our text this morning. Who can behold Emmanuel bleed, and who can doubt his willingness to save? We trust your willingness to save. That's, in a nutshell, our text this morning. Would you turn to it? Exodus chapter 5. Exodus 5. And we'll read as we move along through the text into the sixth chapter of Exodus. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we don't want to doubt, but we know that faith is hard. It's not easy. We know that you call us to trust you, and in that trust, it requires faith through difficulty, through hard circumstances. Father, I pray that you would use this text this morning to take our eyes off of the temporal circumstances and and how that causes and leads us and at times draws us to doubt and rather that you would fix our eyes squarely upon you, that you would lift our gaze Godward this morning and that as we see you for who you really are, who you've truly told us you are, that that would give us the confidence that your people are meant to have in you. Please bless this time, we ask in Christ's name, amen. You are in Exodus chapter 5, and last week we ended at the end of chapter 4, and I want to read those verses again together, Exodus chapter 4, verses 29 through 31. As you look at this text, we saw that the kind of person that God uses is, is the kind of person who surrendered, the kind of person who has said, God, I, I will do whatever you've called me to do, because the the God who owns us is the God who should control us. And then you can see as Moses and even Aaron, as they follow God, even in the difficulty of not understanding how this plan's going to work out and not, not understanding why is this path or plan have to be so difficult, why not soften Pharaoh's heart? Why harden it? But as they surrender and as they obey, you can see they go to the people of Israel, the people who are filled with doubt, and and verses 29 through 31 are so encouraging as you see Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people, and the people did what? They believed. Now, scholars aren't sure exactly where their belief was at all this time whether since the, the, the family first entered Egypt and all of these many, many years, hundreds of years, whether that faith had grown so distant that they, the future generations didn't have any belief in the one true God. Whether you want to look at this as a kind of quote-unquote revival or some sort of, of, of first belief, the people here who had doubted believed. And that belief, you can see, is a kind of belief that isn't merely the sort of belief where you believe something exists. Like, like I believe that the pew exists and that it could hold up my body, but rather the kind of belief, not merely the belief that the demons have that James talks about in God, where they know God is real and exists, but belief on God, where you sit and you rest and now you put your trust in him. And one sign that you have genuine belief is that you have authentic worship. You see the rest of the verse? The people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, that God was aware and he knew he he wasn't distant or deistic, but God was aware of their needs, what do they do? They bowed their heads and worshiped. And then you can see the people of Israel, God's chosen people, now bowing down and worshiping the one true God. 
Not a false god, not syncretizing this god into the Egyptian worldview religions, but rather they acknowledge him as the god, the only god to be worshipped. But then we come to chapter 5. And in your life and in my life, we have these experiences where God reminds us, God shows us, I'm real, I'm, I'm in control. And we, we turn to him, we, we put our trust in him. And then comes chapter 5 in our life too. Not the exact same chapter 5, but a new chapter with new circumstances and new opportunities to doubt. I'm going to look at three different characters in, in chapter 5, and that will lead us to an important question with some answers in chapter 6. I'm going to first of all look at doubts of a hardened adversary. We're going to start looking at Pharaoh's doubts. Pharaoh had lots of doubts. Pharaoh will continue to have doubts, but they're the doubts of a hardened adversary, and we can see this type of character in our day and age, in our own lives, and even biblically speaking, if we look at a theological view, an accurate view theologically of our own depravity, each of us, before God broke through and quickened us to life, we too were hardened adversaries. Whether we thought of ourselves that way or not, that's what the Bible teaches, that before the work of Christ was applied to your life and mine, we were at enmity with God. The characters in this Exodus story, you can see it's really not God versus the people of Israel. Rather, the enemy that presents himself as God's adversary, as God's enemy, is this not even the Egyptians themselves, but Pharaoh himself, who sets himself up in contrast to the one true God. He sets himself up to be a God. And look at his doubt here in the first 14 verses of Exodus chapter 5. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord. Now you hear that phrase throughout the Old Testament. This is often the words of a prophet. God has spoken to this individual to say, You are my mouthpiece. And so when they speak, they are speaking on behalf of God. Of course, there are false prophets that were warned about in Scripture too, who will say they have a word from God, but they don't have a word from God. If someone ever tells you, I have a word from God, what should you do? Well, we're told in this book, God's finished, inerrant word of God, that we have a sufficient word. And so, a good question to ask when someone says, I have a word from the Lord, is to say, what chapter and verse? Because this is God's word. Now, as this word is being given through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as Paul writes, we can see God is speaking through mouthpieces. And so, God has told Moses, I'm, I'm going to put words in your mouth. Moses says, but I'm not eloquent. Doesn't matter. I'm going to put them in your mouth, and you're going to speak them, and they're going to be powerful. But no one's going to believe me. Moses, they're my words. They will believe you. You will have the authority of God Almighty. And the same is the case for us, by the way. Moses, all right, back to the text. Moses says, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to be contrasted from these false deities there in Egypt, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Now Moses and Aaron just told Pharaoh who this God is. But in verse 2, you can see Pharaoh's remark and it seems a rather sarcastic, disrespectful remark. Not probably a legitimate question, more of a rhetorical one. Verse 2, but Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I, mean, I don't obey anyone's voice. I'm Lord of this land. People listen to me. People go where I say go. People do what I tell them to do. Who is this Lord who you are telling me is supposed to tell me what I'm supposed to do? Like, why would there be some outside being dictating to me what I should do with my life? You see how familiar that really is? I mean, we may not have pharaohs in our day, 
But this is the hardened heart of an individual who does not want anyone to be God but themselves. Keep on reading. And he says, I do not know the Lord. That's clear. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. So just to cut to the chase, everything you're saying, I categorically reject. I don't know him. Exodus describes at the very beginning of the story a Pharaoh who didn't remember Joseph. And we can see this is a Pharaoh who doesn't know. He doesn't seek to know. He doesn't even want to know this God who was the God of Joseph. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? I don't know the Lord. Moreover, I won't let Israel go. Verse 3. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. Now the irony here is that it's not going to be Israel who is, who, who is given pestilence or the sword. Moses is saying what God had told him to say a couple of chapters earlier that we would go three days into the wilderness. Now, we're not left having to wonder, was this just a trick? Was, was, was God just playing a trick on them where they were, uh, he, was, he was bearing false witness because God told him to, but really they were just trying to go far enough out to where they wouldn't come back, but rather they would leave. That's, that's a discussion that really doesn't have much fruit to it because we know God's ways are sovereign and God told us already he willed to harden the heart. And so God knows that Pharaoh is going to reject this plan. And in presenting it, Moses and Aaron are saying, we want to worship this God. And I believe now they're speaking not just on behalf of them, but on behalf of the people as well, because these people have now seen that God has remembered them, God has heard their cry, and they have bowed down at the end of the last chapter and worshiped. So they, they, they do want to go make these sacrifices, and Moses says, lest there be pestilence or a sword that falls on us, and by rejecting this, by rejecting this offer, Pharaoh will essentially cause pestilence and sword to fall upon his own people. Verse 4, but the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. We talked last week how God is telling Moses, my people are serving the wrong master. They're my people. And you're going to tell Pharaoh, let my people go that they may serve me, not you. You're not their master, I'm their master. And so God is working to liberate his people from bondage to, to that which they were never intended to serve, right? And again, the same is the case for us. God is a God who delivers and liberates his people from serving masters that are other than him. Pharaoh has a different view of the Hebrews. Pharaoh's view of the, of the Hebrews is that they have one role. Maybe a previous Pharaoh would say that this population is out of control and we need to limit the population by having the, 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 the baby boys slaughtered. But this Pharaoh says, no, no, they have a much more valuable purpose here. If they can control them through this labor, they will create a lot of, of productive uh, they would be productive for us and we can grow as a nation. And so their purpose is work. And, and all you're doing, Moses and Aaron, all you're doing is delaying them from their sole purpose of existence. The God of the Bible doesn't objectify his creation in a way to where all your meaning in life is toward what you produce with your hands. Your work is all that matters. Your relationships are all that matters. God has rather made each and every one of his, the humans who are created by him, every person on the planet who's ever existed has been stamped with his own image. And so they have intrinsic value. They have a dignity that transcends not only any other part of the created order, but a, that transcends all the way to the own image that God himself owns. But for Pharaoh, it's, no, all you are is what you can produce for us. 
The same day Pharaoh, verse 6, commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go gather straw for themselves, but the number of bricks that they made in the past, you should impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifices to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get straw for yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, complete your work, your daily tasks each day as when they, there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, why have you not done all your tasks of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? You, th- you see where the situation has gone? I mean, Pharaoh has no desire to listen to God. And we live in a day and age Like every day and age in human history, post-Genesis 3, where the people of a fallen culture also disregard the voice of Yahweh, also disregard the voice of God, also ask the question, who are you to tell me what to do? We can do it ourselves. And you see throughout the biblical narrative, everyone will do right in their own eyes, except for those whose eyes God turns to him. We can make ourselves a great name and build this tower. We don't have to listen to your preaching, Noah. We don't need anyone telling us what to do. I mean, you look all the way through the Bible and you see the same story that we are familiar with now. We don't have to look around us and say, wow, our day is so bad. Well, it is, but it's always been that way. Sin has always been a reality ever since the fall. And what we should have hope in is not simply the restraint of certain sins. We should have our hope in the ultimate work of God to reverse the curse, to crush the head of the serpent, and to turn hardened enemies to the cross to Jesus Christ, including us. But as a result of this hardness of heart, what seemed to be the right thing certainly was the word of God, now all of a sudden seems to be backfiring on the very people who are giving God their worship. Let's look second of all, not only the doubts of a hardened adversary, but doubts within God's household. Of course, Israel is described in Exodus as God's, not only children, but as God's firstborn son. He, he, he has set his love on this people. They are God's chosen people in this age. And so they are the family of God, and God will accomplish his purposes. But in this same family, you notice the doubt that we next see in verses 15 through 21. Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to me, make bricks, and behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. That's pretty bold of these Hebrew administrative leaders who are under these Egyptian taskmasters, and they're beating these leaders, and these leaders finally have enough bravery to go and say, hey, it's not our fault like, we, we could keep up with the workload if you wouldn't deprive us of the necessary means of creating this. The, the, the production slows down because, not because there's a breakdown in the workforce, there's a breakdown with you all. You've restricted us from having what we need. So obviously it's going to take longer as we search for stubble around the land instead of having straw provided for us to make these bricks. Verse 17, but he said, you're idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. I don't know at what point, if it's here 
or if it was sooner, when, when the people of Israel realized that this was a result of, of Moses, and Pharaoh's, uh, Moses and Aaron's conversation in Pharaoh's court. But at least by now they realize, okay, here, instead of going and being winsome and, and sharing with Pharaoh uh, all that God had said and performing these miracles that you performed in front of us, that was convincing for us. What did you do wrong, Moses? Because clearly, all that, that we're facing now is a result of your lack of leadership. I mean, look at verse 19. The foreman of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily tasks each day. They met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh, and they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hands to kill us. The effect is we are hurting. We are suffering. We are suffering more than we've suffered. The work is harder than it's ever been. That's the effect. What's the cause? Well, the cause, they're saying, is you, Moses. You have put a sword in Pharaoh's hand. You have caused us to stink before him. But what had Moses done? He obeyed. He followed the voice of the Lord. He, he said what God told him to say. The, I don't think we can read this text to say, well, well, he left out some part. No, no, he, he, he says what God told him to say, and, and God did to Pharaoh what God said he was going to do to Pharaoh. These people have many doubts, and they're fixing their doubts on their leaders because of the result. Now, I want us to contrast this moment right now in chapter 5 from a moment later on in Exodus chapter 14. I'm going to have to give a spoiler alert if you've never read the story of Exodus or seen the movie. That's probably not helpful if you've seen a movie. Usually the movies aren't very helpful <laughs> uh, in understanding what God's Word says. But if you know the story, great. If you don't, I'm going to give a little spoiler here. You can turn to Exodus 14, and I just want to contrast these two responses. Exodus 14, verse 26 through 31. The Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea. And we've skipped ahead a few, a few chapters. Stretch your hand out over the sea, that the water may, be, may come back to the Egyptians upon their chariots, upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them in, on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Verse 31, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, and don't miss this part, so or therefore the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. To ask you, is doubt the result of circumstances or the byproduct of a wavering faith? Does our doubt reflect the difficulties we face or does it more reflect a view of God that is faulty? In chapter 14, the Israelites are on cloud nine. They are excited. They see God work if you keep reading Exodus, you see them back to doubting again. Like that's not a one and done, once for all. Now we're trusting God and his servant Moses. They do in that moment. And then they falter. So what's the problem? Okay, there are false teachings in our day that would say the, the problem is the circumstances. And that's really, 
Essentially, at the end of the day, what the prosperity gospel teaches, the health and wealth gospel so-called, and I say so-called because it's not a true gospel, because it's not good news, and that's what the word gospel means. Good message, good news. The bad news of the prosperity gospel is that this God rewards you with health and wellness, well-being, financial blessing on the basis of your earning it, on the basis of your merit. If you don't have all of your desires and dreams, it's because you're not doing something right or someone in your life isn't doing something right. That is a God who always gives us what we want. And that might seem to be a God that's easy to believe. But that would be a God of our own making. That false God may seem easy to believe, but that belief in God is, a, is very hard to hold on to when we face the harsh realities of life. And all of us face harsh realities in life. And if you're not facing one now, then get ready. And if you're facing one right now, that means God is doing something. But these false teachers would turn God into a rewarder of rewards based on your spiritual work versus God pours rain upon the just and the unjust. The sun rises upon the just and the unjust, but God has purposes and plans for all of the blessings and for all of the hardships. The God of the Bible does not need to accommodate our preferences precisely because he isn't made up. He is outside of us. He made us. And so what you believe is best for you, what I believe seems best for me, is irrelevant when it comes to God's purposes and God's plans. Instead of getting comfort for following this God, we often face greater hardship from the world. And this is what the Hebrews are facing. Israel is in a situation now where they're seeing direct consequences of following God's plan. And it's so easy. When we have a warped view of God, it's inevitable that we're going to lay blame on, on people, lay blame on leaders, instead of look to a sovereign God who's at work in all these circumstances. John chapter 15 gives us an important reminder. In fact, it's Jesus quoted in John 15, when Jesus says in verses 18 through 21, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. It can be very easy to, to look to our culture to pat us on the back for, for, for living right. Shouldn't, shouldn't we have blessing? And we find in following God's will and following God's word, instead of blessing, externally speaking, instead of earthly blessings, what we very well can get is persecution. Hardship. Greater hardships than we experienced before. Jesus goes on to say, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, Jesus says, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. Instead of looking at Moses and saying, Moses, we're thankful that you are following God's word. No matter the result, we're glad that you're following, that you're, you're saying the words to Pharaoh that God calls you to say. We're glad to have leadership that follows God. Instead, they're pointing the finger and they're saying things would be so much easier if only. And let's not give in to the temptation to make life easier in a fallen society by not following exactly what God says. By twisting maybe the truth, much like Satan has done ever since Genesis 3. But if we twist it just enough, maybe we can get by without our hardships being increased. Without our workload being worse, so to speak. Maybe we can actually blend in a little bit and be appreciated. 
You'll find anytime there is a Christian celebrity who starts to really make a, make a name with the, with the culture around us, eventually they're going to be asked certain questions. And the answers that they give to those certain questions will decide whether or not the world will continue to love them or whether or not the world will hate them. And you know what those questions are. Those questions are questions that ask, do you take Jesus' words seriously? Do you take the apostles' teaching seriously? Do you take the Bible seriously? And if that person says, no, not really, not all of it, that can be explained away, well, then they'll probably still be liked and celebrated by our fallen culture. If you take the other out, you can expect persecution, but you can expect so much more than that. You can expect God's favor. You can expect God's ultimate blessing, which can't be evaluated on the time frame of this little limited time period on planet Earth in our physical existence prior to all of the rest of everlasting, all of the rest of eternity in the, the, the timetable of God. Rather, this is a little blip. And God's promises to God's people for following him will be true. We'll see that as we continue reading. We see doubts within God's household, of course, doubts from a hardened adversary, and notice, third of all, doubts from a surrendered servant. I say surrendered because that's what Moses is here. He, he had all the objections, he ran out of objections, and he asked his father-in-law if he could go back into Egypt. And he's there, he's obeying God, and just because we're surrendered and obeying God doesn't mean we won't have more opportunities to surrender. We saw that last week. Moses is leaving, and even in the previous chapter, we find there were yet unsurrendered areas of Moses' life as it concerned having the sign of the covenant on his own child. So here we are again, and Moses seems to have doubts. Doubts are not uncommon for believers. Even for, for those who have a prominent role in institutions, we all have doubts. You can look at the disciples. They all had doubts. We pick on Thomas. <laughs> Doubting Thomas, we say. Well, Thomas vocalized his doubts in a way maybe the other disciples didn't. But they all had doubts. John chapter 20, 25, so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord, but he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in into the mark of the nails, I place my hand into his side. I will never believe, Thomas said. Then verses 27 through 28 of John chapter 20. Jesus comes, and then he says to Thomas, put your finger here, and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. What was Thomas's response there? My Lord and my God. In other words, you are the one in charge. And his faith was faltering, but what set his faith where it needed to be? What dispelled the doubts? I'll just leave that question hanging for a few minutes. What dispelled Thomas's doubts? Back in Exodus chapter 5, look at verses 22 through 23. Pharaoh responds blaming the people of Israel. The people of Israel respond by blaming Moses. Looks a lot like Genesis 3. The woman you gave me, right? Blame, shift the blame, keep doing that. Okay, but, but who does Moses blame? Moses blames God. Then Moses turns to the Lord and said, now turns to the Lord means he turned to the Lord in prayer. And even if your prayers aren't maybe as theologically uh, robust as you think they should be, if at the very least you're turning to the Lord and praying your thoughts, that's a step. Lament doesn't always sound like an encouraging Bible study, but true lament directs us to the right place. It puts our gaze Godward and in the heart of the regenerate believer, the Holy Spirit does a work in that lament. 
He's going to do it for Moses. We're not going to get to all of that this morning. But let's just read through verse 23 here. Then Moses turned to the Lord in prayer and said, Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? That, that word evil is a, a, a pretty strong word. It could be translated differently, but essentially it has the same idea. Why are you doing the wrong thing? Why are you treating your people this bad way? And there are many who voice that same sort of complaint to God. Why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever even send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to his, this people, and you have, notice this, you have not delivered your people at all. You said you would. You said you remembered your people, and you're going to deliver them from Egypt, and you haven't done any of that. None of it at all. Maybe you feel the same way sometimes. God, you've made this promise. Where's the fulfillment? God, I have surrendered my life to you, and here's what I get as a result. I get made fun of, broken relationships. I, I, I have a hard time with these things. And Why can't you just give me the blessing that you promise? Blessed is the one, Psalms 1 says, who doesn't follow the wicked, but instead delights in God's word. And God, I, I've been trying to do that. This is where the prosperity gospel would step right in very quickly and say, well, something is wrong with the way you're thinking about God's work. That if, if you would fix these things in your life and if you would do more of these things, then you would win God's favor and blessing. And the true gospel says, God has set his love on you. You are his chosen people. He has already given you his favor, not because of your righteous deeds, which you lack, but because of Jesus Christ. And he's atoned for you. Let's keep reading because Moses' complaint to God is going to come with a response from God. And I want to make sure we hit that before time expires. It, we, we have these doubts. Now, we could spend more time looking at the hardened adversary. And if, and if that's you here this morning, if, if you are, you know, I don't even know if God is real. Who are you, God, that you can control what I am, what I should do? Well, I pray that God breaks that hardness in your life. For a lot of us, we resonate with numbers two and three. And whether you feel like you're kind of like Moses' doubts here, like, God, you haven't fulfilled what you said you would, or you're more like the people of Israel's doubts here, where you're like, why are these bad things happening to me, and you're shifting and pointing blame? It's these people, and they're not doing that, and these people over here aren't living as they should, pointing the finger. The same question is, what can turn doubters into disciples, the faithless into followers? We could say, what truth do we need when surrounded by doubt? And the truth is simple. We need to have our confidence in God. That's where our confidence should be. Not in the need for society to change. Boy, if only Pharaoh would... Everything hinges on Pharaoh's conversion. We can put our faith, whether it's in political parties or some sort of sense of national revival, like that's what we're, we need more than anything else, but we don't have to put our confidence in the need for society to change. We don't need to put our confidence in the will of other people to act favorably toward us. But if, if only these people would change the way they treat God's people. It would be very easy to respond to mistreatment with our own forms of mistreatment toward them. But no, our confidence is not in the need for society to change or the will of others to act favorably toward us. It's not in our loved ones or fellow Christians to accomplish God's purposes, whether they do or not. That's not where our confidence needs to be. And it doesn't need to be certainly on ourselves. Like, if I can just have enough self-confidence, then everything will be fixed. No. Our confidence must be in God. But why? Let's close this morning by answering that question. Why should our confidence be placed in God and God alone? Number one, because he is the God who acts. God, in chapter six, is not a God who's just been sitting around doing nothing all this time. He's the God who acts. 
You say, first of all, our God always accomplishes his purposes. Look at verse 1. But the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I, notice the future tense verb, will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of this land. I don't even have to send you out as much because Pharaoh's going to send you out. And I just love the way he puts it. Now you shall see what I will do. And that is a promise that each of us, I believe, can claim as we look at God's revealed word and what he said he will do. We get to watch him work. That doesn't mean he doesn't use us as a part of that work. We're, pl- we're privileged with the, with the opportunity and the stewardship as his people to be a part of that work, but it's a work that ultimately he does, both the willing and the working of his good pleasure, Philippians 2.12 says. It's not up to you and it's not up to me. God will work and he will work through us, just like he will work through Moses. We can say our God always accomplishes his purposes and second of all, our God always keeps his promises. Always. Notice the past tense verbs and the future tense verbs in verses three through eight. You know, past tense apart from future. This happened in the past versus this will happen. Verses two through five. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, as God Almighty. But my name the Lord did not make. But my name, the Lord, I did not, uh, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan and land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard, there's that perfect past, I have heard the groaning of the people whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. And I have remembered my covenant. He's a God who acts in the past, who's been acting in the past. He's been sitting around doing nothing. But notice the future tense in verses 6 through 8. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from the slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment and I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out of the, from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. I will give it to you for possession. I am Yahweh. Like, you're Moses in that conversation. And there's just not much else to say. Moses will always find something to say. But God is telling him, all of this in the past will be accomplished. None of my promises will go unfulfilled. None. Because he's a God who acts. But not only a God who acts, he's the God who acts omnipotently. Look back at verse 3. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as, here's the Hebrew word, El Shaddai. God Almighty. You can see El Shaddai referenced in Genesis. Genesis chapter 17, God is giving the promise of the covenant and he tells him, I am, this is Genesis 17 verse 1, I am God Almighty. I am El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Multiply him greatly, but then there's the temptation to doubt when a few chapters later, he's called to offer up his son. We know from Hebrews 11 that Abraham knows that God has the power to raise his son from the dead. Why? Because he is God Almighty. He's El Shaddai. There's only one God, but this God has many names. And as we study the names of God, we realize God is revealing himself through these names of his own attributes. One of the best exercises or or assignments I was ever given when I was beginning my biblical, formal biblical education in Bible college, my freshman year, we were required to write a biography of God. It'd be a great exercise to do, write a biography of God. Not an autobiography, but a biography of God. And so you look at what are the names of God? And what are the attributes of God, the perfections of God, the purpose of God, the decrees of God? You study those names and you learn a lot about the God you serve and worship. And this name, El Shaddai, is a recognition of God's power and absolute sovereign control. It's synonymous with the idea of omnipotent. 
all-powerful. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob recognized this name. It's given to them. They also knew, knew of the name Yahweh. This passage isn't saying that they didn't know that name. You can see even them using the name Yahweh. But, but what you don't see, you can't see until it's accomplished through the Exodus, they don't understand the fullness of the meaning of God's name until this deliverance. The power to deliver that these Hebrews will see God perform will, will fill their, should fill their theology out in ways yet to be revealed in biblical history. This truth about El Shaddai, God's omnipotence, he is almighty, this truth for some is going to give confidence in the face of doubt like it did Abraham. For others, this truth of God's control over our circumstances is met with bitterness toward God. And you see that in Ruth chapter 1. In Ruth 1.19, you're introduced to Naomi, and Naomi faces some horrible circumstances. Verses 19 through 21, so the two of them, this is Naomi and Ruth, went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? Naomi says to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for El Shaddai, the Almighty, has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and El Shaddai, the Almighty, has brought calamity upon me? You see, the truth of God's omnipotence for some people, it gives them more reason to doubt because they respond to God's sovereign control not with worship, but they turn away from God because of that. Instead of recognizing that God's purposes and plans are all good in the struggle, in the hurt, in the pain, in the suffering, that is what turns them away from God, is recognition of his all power. That's why the question of, as C.S. Lewis called it, the problem of pain, ever since the days of Epicurus, when he first articulated that logical dilemma has been something that agnostics and atheists alike have used to turn away from God because if God is in control, why would he allow suffering? There's a really compelling answer in the gospel to that question. God eventually proves himself to Naomi. Three chapters later, if you're familiar with the story, I won't fill in all the gaps, what God does through Boaz for Ruth, and in Ruth chapter 4, verse 14 through 17, the women say to Naomi, Blessed be Yahweh, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. And your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse, the father of David, which you can read about more in Matthew 1. Did God have a plan and a purpose for Naomi? Yes. Was it a good purpose and plan? Absolutely. And God would prove himself to Naomi that his omnipotence, his decrees, his purposes as El Shaddai are good, even when they don't feel like it. And I don't know what it's going to take for you if you're doubting God right now. But I would challenge you this morning to lift your gaze to him, to bow and worship him despite the circumstances that Satan would love you to use to point blame at him. And instead, you don't have to understand, but you do have to trust. Back in Exodus, and we'll wrap up shortly, verses 2 through 4, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, the God Almighty, but my name the Lord did not make known to them. I also established my covenant with them in the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Which leads us to this final point. 
Why should our confidence be placed in God and God alone? Because he's the God who acts. He's the God who acts omnipotently, and he's the God who acts omnipotently to save. You see that in verses 6 and 7? This is the true and living God telling us that he will save, he will deliver, he will redeem his people with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Is your confidence in this God? Are you looking to him, confident that he will act to fulfill all his promises, or are you waiting to see, waiting to decide if his word is true and if he can be trusted? Well, we'll just have to see how this pans out. Are you waiting till he makes life easier for you in order for you to trust him? Has your view of God been warped into believing the prosperity gospel that his rewards are in the form of earthly treasures, riches, comforts, and the lack of difficulty? The Christian life is a life of hope and one of purpose and even one of joy, not because we aren't persecuted. We are. And you may feel like Naomi and Ruth 1 and not Naomi and Ruth 4. You may feel like the Hebrews here in chapter 5 and not chapter 14. But the way to endure in your faith and dispel the doubts is by not having confidence on all these things that are transient, that are changing, whether it's people or circumstances, but in the God who doesn't change, the God who acts, the God who is almighty, El Shaddai, who wants to prove to you that he is a good God. Father, please give us faith. Give us not only the awareness of truth, the understanding of how you've acted in the past, but give us confidence in you. And even as we grow less and less confident in ourselves, And avoid the temptation to put our confidence merely in other people. Put our confidence in the governments around us if only they could change to make circumstances of life and society different. Father, please help us to avoid all those temptations and put our confidence in you, knowing that we can trust you because you are almighty, you are all-powerful, and there is no other God besides you. And so, Father, you are the God we worship this morning. You are the only God. And I pray, God, that you would draw to yourself anyone here, any boy, girl, man, or woman who has yet to surrender, bow, and worship. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.